Good morning, church. We're glad you guys are here. My name is Sean, and I am the operations director and in charge of men's ministry here at ABC. Happy New Year, and uh, glad you guys are joining us. Um, before we jump in, I thought I'd just share a few messages and things that are coming up here at the church to get you guys connected and plugged in. First, uh, if you're new to the church, relatively new to the church, or have been here a while but just haven't gotten connected in the past, uh, we have a connections class that's going to be starting on January 29th. It's during the 9 o'clock service. Uh, it's an opportunity to get connected to our pastors, to our elders, learn about what ABC Church is about uh, from our history to where we are now and where we're headed in terms of missions, engagement, and the church itself. So we'd invite you guys to consider joining that. It's a great way to connect in a small group setting at a larger church and a cool way for you to get to know some of the uh, people that are at the church in the same situation as you. So again, Connections class, January 29th um, at the nine o'clock service. We'd love to have you guys join us for that. Uh, you guys may or may not know this, but ABC also has a, a ministry called Grief Share. And uh, the next class for Grief Share is starting on the 19th of January. Um, it's an opportunity for those that are going through some tough times in their life uh, with the loss of a loved one or someone close to them to connect with others in the same situation. Uh, so if you're interested in that, I encourage you to stop by the office, uh, call the office, uh, or drop us an email and let us know. We'd love to get you connected into Grief Share and be a part of that. And uh, another cool opportunity here at the church uh, is we are looking for uh, crucial members of our worship team uh, in the area of production. Uh, these individuals help us out on Sundays and on Thursday nights. Uh, we'll train you. We'll help you be a part of that team. We'll infuse you into that community and would love to have those interested in being a part of our services. Uh, let us know. You can let Matt know uh, with an email, matt at abcchurch.org. And uh, you can call the office or stop by. Again, it's a member of our production team, a huge part of our Sunday morning and Thursday nights, and would love to have those interested to join us. Hope you guys have a great day. Hey, so glad you're watching today. We're going to be in Matthew chapter 10. If you have your Bible, uh, wherever you're at, go grab that. We're going to read a lot of scripture today in Matthew chapter 10. So we'll get there in just a minute. Uh, in 2013, there's this event called the Festival of Dangerous Ideas. They have it year to year in Australia. And I don't know if I could describe it really well. It's, it's kind of, they, you know, they brand it this big festival all about disruptive ideas. Uh, I think for, um, for Christians, it, it's a little bit of a scary underbelly of like all of the most dramatic, drastic, sensational things about secularism. So it's it's a wild conference, but they bring in different people. And what I appreciate about it is that a lot of it's based on conversation and saying viewpoints and reacting to viewpoints. So anyways, I'm watching a little bit of this conference and there's a Q&A section and one lady stands up in the crowd and it's this huge stadium. And she asks this question, uh, they're talking about dangerous ideas. Um, in a positive light, just, you know, ideas that can have big uh, impact or maybe they're disruptive enough to status quo that then have a big impact that really changes the world in some way. So she asks this question at the Festival of Dangerous Ideas in Australia. Which so-called dangerous idea do you think would have the greatest potential to change the world for the better if implemented? This guy, Dan Savage, responds, um, he's kind of a front-running leader for the LGBT community. He says, population control, and everybody kind of, you know, chuckles. He says, there's too many people on the planet. I'm pro-choice. I believe women should have the right to control their bodies, but sometimes in my darker moments, I'm anti-choice. I think abortions should be mandatory for about 30 years. He says it kind of tongue-in-cheek. The crowd erupts in laughter, and then they cheer. 
there, there's a darkness to it for sure. Then a lady named Jermaine Greer, she responds in this just kind of weird flowery way that's like hardly cohesive. She says, the one that terrifies us the most is freedom, to actually be free. It is to most human beings disorienting, terrifying, but it's the essential bottom line if you want to be a moral individual, to be free to make choices, and that includes making mistakes. And everybody cheers, but you're just like, what are you talking about? Like, we just said nothing. And then this guy, Peter Hitchens, he's the brother of Christopher Hitchens, uh, one of the leading thinkers in the New Atheist Movement. So Peter, um, I don't know if you know, he's a believer in Jesus. He says, the most dangerous idea in human history and philosophy remains the belief that Jesus Christ was the Son of God and rose from the dead. And that is the most dangerous idea you will ever encounter. And the crowd goes wild. They cheer like crazy. But then the moderator says, well, I'm afraid you can't leave it there, Peter. Please say more about that. And then he says, I can't leave it there. It alters the whole of human behavior and all our responsibilities. It turns the universe from a meaningless chaos into a designed place in which there is justice and there is hope. And therefore, we all have a duty to discover the nature of that justice and work towards that hope. It alters us all. If we reject it, it alters us all as well. It is incredibly dangerous. It's why so many people turn against it. And a hush just falls over the crowd. They're completely silent. It's this wild moment on video. The world cheers for the danger of Christianity when he first says that that's a dangerous thing, but then they're silent upon Hitchens' explanation of what he meant. See, they're using the same language, but talking about two different things. So the world hears him speak and they say, well, of course belief in Jesus is dangerous. Yes, say more. Of course it discourages reason and science. It leads to injustice and gender oppression and it justified slavery. Just look at the Old Testament, look at everything there. But then Hitchens is saying that it's dangerous in a way that's more reminiscent of Mr. Beaver from C.S. Lewis writing, who said anything about being safe. Of course he isn't safe, but he's good. He's the king, I tell you. In a really postmodern world, even post-postmodern world that we live in today, there's less focus on truth and truthfulness. So the conversation and the critique around faith is less what you'd call epistemological. It's kind of the study of knowledge and of truth. It's less epistemological and it's more ethical, more about goods and bads. Where we get our definition of goods and bads, who knows for the world. But it's no longer as much, this is false, but now it's more, this is bad, or this is dangerous. Which means that modern apologetics, what we say about Christianity and our faith, it can't only be, this is true, but also needs to be, this is good, and this is worth it. I say all that because I think that's exactly what Jesus does here. He says some really, really hard things, some really specific things. He paints a brutally honest picture of Christianity, talking about some hard truths. He says that it's dangerous. He says that it's divisive. But then he says that it's worth it. It's dangerous, it's divisive, but it's worth it. I'm gonna start reading in chapter 10, verse 17. And again, this is a long section of scripture, but I'm gonna read straight through it. And then we'll talk about it in just a minute. So verse 17 of chapter 10. Jesus, remember, he's sending the apostles out uh, to do some crazy, amazing ministry. He says, beware of men 
For they will deliver you over to courts and flog you in their synagogues. And you'll be dragged before governors and kings for my sake, to bear witness before them and the Gentiles. When they deliver you over, do not be anxious how you are to speak or what you are to say. For what you are to say will be given to you in that hour. For it is not you who speak, but the spirit of your father speaking through you. Brother will deliver brother over to death, and the father his child, and children will rise against parents and have them put to death. And you'll be hated by all for my name's sake. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. When they persecute you in one town, flee to the next. For truly I say to you, you will not have gone through all the towns of Israel before the Son of Man comes. A disciple is not above his teacher, nor a servant above his master. It is enough for the disciple to be like his teacher and the servant like his master. If they have called the master of the house Beelzebul, how much more will they malign those of his household? So, have no fear of them. For nothing is covered that will not be revealed or hidden that will not be known. What I tell you in the dark, say in the light. What you have heard whispered, proclaim on the housetops. And do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Are not two sparrows sold for a penny? And not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father. But even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear not, therefore, you are of more value than many sparrows. So everyone who acknowledges me before men, I also will acknowledge before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I also will deny before my Father who is in heaven. First thing to say is we just have to own together today that we can't, explain every piece of what I just read. And I, I can't try to do that right now. My hope is that as I read that in its entirety, those verses, my hope is that there was a couple lines that kind of rubbed you wrong. Like it, it maybe made the hairs on the back of your neck stand up a little bit and you thought, oh, that that's weird. That's a little hard. And, but the reality is I can't, um, I can't teach through every single sentence he said. Uh, here today. My hope is just to pull out a couple things that really sort of rise to the top um, for me and things that I think will be most helpful. So first, I want to ask, what words do you notice? When I just said that, what words do you notice? For me, I notice these phrases that you'll be delivered over, you'll be dragged, you know, in front of the courts and the synagogues, you'll be flogged, you'll be put to death. So we have to realize following Jesus from Jesus' own mouth He's not like holding any cards up his sleeve. He's saying, this is dangerous. This is a dangerous endeavor. And for them, it was physical. For us, it's almost always guaranteed to be less physical than that. For them, it was physical, but also it was more than a physical threat for them. It was a complete upending of their worldview. Jesus is saying this, following me, this upsets everything. This demands a change in the whole of human behavior, back to Peter Hitchens' language. See, that's how it was and that's how it still is. When you enter a relationship with Jesus, when you decide to follow him and go out on mission for him and with him, everything that you hold, in a sense, it becomes endangered. See, every identity and love and loyalty and habit that you have, it becomes endangered. You lay that before Jesus as the great surgeon and you ask him, okay, do you still want this for me? Do you still want this as part of my identity or something that I'm attached to? Or is it for my good and my glory, in your glory, that this be cut out and removed from me? See, following Jesus is dangerous. 
But what do we do with that danger? If you look at verse 28 through 30, don't fear those who kill the body but can't kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. So first of all, what do you do with the danger? You don't fear people. Don't fear people. But two, you fear God and remember how much he loves you. So it says, rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell, which sounds scary, And in a sense, it should be. There's a healthy fear in that. But then the very next sentence, he makes this quick turn and he says, but listen, are not two sparrows sold for a penny? And not one of them will fall to the ground outside of the father's care. And you are worth so much more than two sparrows. So it's like he says, fear God. He's the one who has the power to destroy, to do absolutely anything. And yet he loves and cares for you more than for sparrows. So fear God. But not only fear God, remember how much that God loves you. Remember how much that God values you. What do you do with a faith that feels dangerous? Don't fear people, but fear God. Remember how much he loves you. Okay, moving on. Not only is following Jesus dangerous, it's also divisive. If you look at verse 34, he keeps going. Do not think that I have come to bring peace to the earth. Okay, immediately, that should make you pause Um, that should make you wonder, okay, why would he say that? Like, we just celebrated Christmas. We just talked all about peace. Like, what do you mean he didn't come to bring peace on earth? Of course he came to bring peace on earth. Keep reading. I have not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I have come to set a man against his father and a daughter against her mother and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And a person's enemies will be those of his own household. Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. Whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it. And whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Okay, Jesus, what about all this? What about John 17? When you pray that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they may become perfectly one. You remember that prayer? It's the high priestly prayer. What about Titus 3? It says, avoid foolish controversies, genealogies, dissensions, quarrels about the law. They're unprofitable. They're worthless. Avoid those divisions. What about Philippians 2? Complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. What about all of these passages and these pleas for unity, for non-divisiveness? Then Jesus comes along here, Matthew 10, and says, I've come to set man against his father, daughter against her mother. He says, a people's enemies will be those of his own household. Like, is that, that, that's weird, right? That feels like contradiction. That feels like this cognitive dissonance with what Jesus is saying. So let's clarify a couple things. Every New Testament teaching on unity is within the context of the family of God. That means the teachings about unity and non-divisiveness are in the context of believer to believer, Believer relationship with believer. Now, the times when Jesus or Paul or whoever else addresses believers' relationships with unbelievers, they don't actually talk about unity. They talk about peace. Yeah, they talk about kindness. They talk about love, but not unity. There is this understood space for the natural divisiveness that the gospel brings. So I want to say this, and and I'm going to say some things that maybe are hard to say, but I think are are true biblically. 
the gospel is inherently divisive. The key, though, is that the gospel is also inherently a message of reconciliation. It's about the reconciliation between God and people. So you ask, well, how is it divisive? The division that it creates is between people who want peace with God and between people who refuse peace with God. So it's divisive, but it's between, the the dividing line is between those who are reconciled to God and those who are not. See, think with me about all the layers of division created by the gospel, and I'm going to run through a couple passages here. It's the division between truth and falsehood. In John 16, there's some of the Pharisees who said, this man is not from God, for he does not keep the Sabbath. Others said, how can a man who is a sinner do such signs? And there was what? A division among them. The gospel is the dividing line that runs down the center of every human heart where the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to what? The division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. It divides between flesh and spirit for all of us. For the desires of the flesh are against the spirit. The desires of the spirit are against the flesh. For those are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. Okay, we get that. Those sound like familiar verses. We know those. But still, it feels a little harsh when you bring your family into it, right? That's the part for me that feels like, Jesus, I, it's hard for me to reconcile that with other things that I, I think it means to be a good dad and to be a good husband. How do I reconcile that? So just for a minute, don't think about your relationships with your family, with your nuclear family. Think about your relationship with yourself and see what Jesus calls for. Look at Luke 9, 23. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily, and follow me. Colossians 3, 5. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. Galatians 2, 20. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. It's clear Jesus calls for undivided loyalty to him over any competing attachment to your own self. So then I think, what is family if not an extension of my own self? If not just an extension of my own heart and my own love? Makes me think of the line from Elizabeth Stone that making the decision to have a child, it's to decide forever to have your heart go walking around outside your body. And parents, you know that feels deeply true that resonates with you in a deep way. And if that's true, the question is, why wouldn't Jesus call for the same level of loyalty to him over even our most precious relationships? See, I don't think Jesus is being any harsher here than he was any other time in any other teaching. It just feels that way because when he brings your nuclear family into the picture, it feels like, whoa, whoa, whoa. Jesus, don't touch it. Yeah, you can tell me to be crucified in myself. You can tell me to deny, my, to deny myself and to follow you, to take up my cross. You can tell me all that, but like when you bring my, bring my little girls into the picture and my wife or my mom or my dad, like, okay, that feels, that feels too close to home. I think it feels that way for us because for some reason, maybe it's Hallmark movies, maybe it's uh, America, maybe it's just country music, I don't know. But family has become the one idol, I think for most modern American Christians, it's the one idol that basically everyone agrees is okay to have as an idol. 
And so it's become this irrefutable reason to do virtually anything that we want. We can make any decision. We can make any purchase. We can make any allocation of our time. If you're doing it for your family, no one can say anything about it, right? No one can say you're wrong. We have this idea in our head, like there's no way Jesus could possibly disagree with something that I'm doing if I say I'm doing it for my family. So we end up hearing stuff like, well, we don't have margin for, for rest or for worship because, uh, you know, nine-year-old Billy needs to play two club sports at the same time this season. And I'm not going to say no to my kids' dreams. It's for my family, right? I know I could give to missions and I could see hundreds of Muslims come to Christ next year alone. And I know our car works fine, but man, my kids would just be so blessed if they had a new one. I wanna bless my kids, it's for my family. I'm not gonna not bless them, you know, my kids. Muslim Christians, by the way, they would never have this same struggle with this passage that we do. It's, it's so much more built into their culture. Like when they say yes to Jesus, they are literally saying no to their nuclear family. Now for us, our hearts are deceptive. And so lots of times we have mixed motives and what seems selfless is actually selfish. We all kind of know that, you know, you said the car is for your family, but you know, it's for yourself. But even harder than that, maybe something we don't think about is that you can be doing something that is for someone else. So it's technically selfless, but it's still not the most right thing to do. I think that's the hard necessary truth buried in what Jesus is saying here saying just because you're doing something for your family, it doesn't mean that you're automatically doing what God would have you do. And so often the decisions that we justify in the name of family, they only serve to show our family that our faith is weak, that money and materials bring fulfillment when they really don't, and that Jesus isn't really the king that we say he is. See, I love my family. I, I adore them. They have stretched the capacity of, of my heart in ways that I didn't know was possible. I love them. But in, and this maybe is piercing, but if I only come to church a quarter of the year and my reason is something having to do with for my family, something has gone terribly wrong. Something has gone terribly wrong. And I think to that kind of culture, which is a very Central Coast kind of church culture, I think Jesus would have this kind of message from this passage. Okay, forget about your family for a minute. What about you and me? Am I your first love or am I not? I think honestly, that's at the heart of what he's saying here. Saying, okay, forget about them for a minute. I know you love them. I get it. What about you and me? What about the love we had at first, just you and me? Am I your first love or not? See, at the individual level, Submission to the Lordship of Jesus will result in division between the parts of your heart that are faithfully in step with his spirit and the parts of you that remain loyal to the flesh. That makes sense. I heard someone call it difficult self-conflict. I love that language. In the same way though, submission to the Lordship of Jesus, it will also result in division between you and the people, even in your own family, who refuse to submit to the Lordship of Jesus. And while this feels hard to say, I would say that that division isn't a bad thing, but it's good and right. It's good and right that a blood-bought child of God has been set apart, made holy, made as different as you can possibly be. And so now, just like darkness proves light and shadows prove sunshine, just the fact that there is a dividing contrast between a believer and a non-believer, that's a beautiful thing, no matter whose DNA they share because that's the differentiating power of the gospel. 
to adopt you and to say, actually, you're part of the family of God now above and beyond anything else. Okay, last thing I'll say about that, and then we'll work our way to the closing point here. Last thing I'll say, uh, Dietrich Bonhoeffer had this quote that the cross is God's sword on earth. The cross is the thing that divides. I say that because that means that though the gospel is inherently divisive, that does not need to make you a divisive person, okay? That doesn't mean that you need to be naturally divisive and harsh. I think about when Jesus was about to be arrested in the garden. Judas betrayed him, remember? And what did Peter do? He, he went down and grabbed this sword from one of the servants, a guy named Malchus, and he chops his ear off. And so Jesus goes over there and he puts it back on, blowing everyone's mind. He goes and puts it back on. You can feel his unfamiliar or his familiar unamusement with Peter. Like, Peter, this is so much bigger than this moment. You can almost hear him saying, like, what I'm doing here is on purpose. Peter, you don't need a sword. Don't chop ears off right now. I am drawing the dividing line right now between good and evil, between life and death for all of eternity. And that's going to be offensive enough. That will be the only sword you will ever need. Put the sword down, Peter. See, the, the divisiveness, the offensiveness of the gospel, naturally, that does not make you a harsh and divisive person. You don't need to be picking up swords and chopping off any ears, okay? Just the opposite. All the more reason to be the most kind, the most loving, the most peaceable people on earth to let the gospel be the most offensive thing about us. It is all the sword we will ever need. Following Jesus is dangerous. Following Jesus is divisive, but it's worth it. I was running my wife through this sermon a couple days ago, and she was like, oh, dangerous, divisive, worth it. You should talk about how you like to ride your bike at night because that's super dangerous. It's really divisive because I think you're an idiot, and you must think it's still worth it. So anyways, that's just that was for free. Uh, I was like, she didn't even think about it. It just like came out of her so quick, but it's worth it. Verse 40, whoever receives you receives me. Whoever receives me receives him who sent me. The one who receives a prophet because he's a prophet will receive a prophet's reward. The one who receives a righteous person because he's a righteous person will receive a righteous person's reward. Whoever gives one of these little ones even a cup of cold water because he's a disciple, truly I say to you, he will by no means lose his reward. So if following Jesus and going on mission with Jesus is not worth it, then you know what it is. It's stupid. Yeah, if it's just dangerous, then why endure the danger? Why even be associated with something so divisive and so offensive? And the answer is right here. For all it costs, you get Jesus. Think about what you receive. You get Jesus. You get relationship with the one who made you. The one that your soul was made to know, to delight in, to be with, the one who loved you since before the foundation of the world, when you were just a thought in his imagination, you get hope for today, purpose for today, a bright hope for tomorrow, for all of eternity. You get to know peace that surpasses understanding for when, for when the diagnosis comes, for when the broken relationship blows up. You get to know the love that, that is completely unconditional, the perfect love that's like the great archetype for all love, for all relationships. You get to know the one who invented love, 
the one who invented peace and comfort and joy, the one who is himself, love and peace, like it, it just, it runs from who he is. You get to know him. You get Jesus. You get to know Jesus. For all that it costs, it is dangerous. Jesus is not trying to hide anything from you. It is dangerous in, in more ways than one. It is divisive. The gospel is inherently divisive. It is God's sword on earth that divides between good and evil, between death and life. It pierces into the core of who we are. Like we, we don't like the offensiveness of the gospel. It gets, it offends us. Like it points into me and says, okay, that part of you is not good. That part of you is the flesh. You need to cut that out. You need to remove that. It's dangerous and it's divisive, but man, is it worth it because you get to know Jesus and that is the one thing that is worth everything. It is worth it because he is worth it. I wanna pray for us and then I just wanna read one passage of scripture and then we'll, we'll be done. Father, thank you so much for the bluntness of your words. Thanks for just telling us exactly what we're signing up for when we follow you. There's danger involved. For a lot of the world and for a lot of history, there's been physical danger involved. Uh, Father, I'm thankful that that's not the case for most of us right here, right now. Uh, but we also acknowledge the danger even culturally, socially, um, relationally. We acknowledge the divisiveness that a Christian faith can present in our world and in our families. I, I know that there's people in our church who they've lost relationships because of allegiance to Jesus. God, would you honor and bless that courage and that commitment? We acknowledge not only is it dangerous, not only is it divisive, but it's worth it to follow you. And there are some days where that feels more or less true. So God, give us a greater measure of faith today to know that no matter what the cost, it is worth it to follow Jesus simply because we get Jesus. We get to know you. We get to do life with you now and for all of eternity. God, we love you. We bless your name today. In Jesus' name, amen. Let me read really quick uh, before we turn this off from Philippians 3. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I've suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Amen.